Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. What kind of war should the United States be preparing to fight? After Iraq and Afghanistan, many strategic leaders and even more commentators have proclaimed a desire to turn the page from the era of counterinsurgency to a new era of great power competition. Even before the return of large-scale combat operations with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, talk of great power competition has included the risk of LSCO, or LISCO, in our future as well. Are the U.S. Armed Forces ready for that? War in Ukraine has already shown the limitations of our supply reserves, but even more profound is the question of whether our armed forces have access to personnel reserves necessary to sustain major operations over a long period. Our guests today are two members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2023 who have worked specifically on questions of U.S. readiness for major conflict, including the potential roles of the Individual Ready Reserve, or IRR, and the Selective Service. We are delighted to have them with us today to discuss these fascinating and perhaps troubling topics. Colonel Kent W. Park is a 1999 graduate of the United States Military Academy. He has served in a variety of command and staff positions in Korea and in Iraq. Colonel Park attended the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and earned a master's degree in public policy before returning to the United States Military Academy to teach American politics in the Department of Social Sciences. Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Tronowski is an Army Reserve officer in the Medical Service Corps and a career federal employee. Following graduation from the War College, Lieutenant Colonel Tronowski will serve on active duty as the senior military advisor and practitioner in residence at the George Washington University's Elliott School for International Affairs. He holds both JD and MPH degrees from the State University of New York at Buffalo, as well as a Master of Military Arts from the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and a BA in History from St. Peter's College. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you for having us. So uh, I, this question for both of you, but I'll, I'll look at you first, Kent, and then to Steve. So what inspires you to get interested in your research topic? Well, that's a, it's an interesting question because this was not my primary research interest. Um, it was a sort of a secondary background res- research I was doing. We've had a lot of these senior leaders coming in, talking to us about the potential conflict with um, a, a uh, near-peer threat, mm-hmm. China, Russia, or other um, threats that are out there. And, and I just wanted to get a better sense for, well, what did that actually look like? What does a large-scale combat operation against uh, those threats, what, what would they look like? And as I started to do my research, I became very, very concerned specifically about the potential casualty rates and the manpower requirements, which then made me think about okay, then, then where are these manpower coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, we currently have a recruiting crisis, but beyond that, where are these personnel going to come from in order to replenish and regenerate the uh, manpower requirements? And then that 
sort of got me into a rabbit hole of conscription draft, the IRR individual ready reserve. Like what is the process and what is our current capability? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, when we talk about selective service, I, I can never resist saying that I'm not quite the first generation of new selective service registrants, but since Jimmy Carter came up with the idea in 1980, I, I registered in 1985 when ah. I turned 18. So I, that's, that's a long time ago, right? Uh, but we'll talk about the, where the selective service fits into these plans. Steve, how about you? What got you interested in the IRR? Well, I uh, have a very unique uh, Army uh, assignment history. Uh, after leaving active duty uh, as, a, as, a, as a young officer, I, I spent almost 13 years in the IRR while I was uh, going to graduate school and, and, and beginning my civilian career and my family in Washington, D.C. Um, and the IRR uh, is mostly people who have had most of their military service behind them. Uh, so probably uh, without a, a, a constituency to advocate for it, um, I was probably the best suited to look into this uh, because I was most familiar with it. I, I've long been concerned uh, with the dwindling numbers of, of the organization. But when I came to the War College, I became involved with the, the Ukraine Integrated Research Project uh, led by Dr. John Nagel. And specifically, I wanted to dive into the strategic personnel piece. And I think the inflection point for me with this inquiry was uh, the Russian partial mobilization uh, in late September of, uh, of 2022. Uh, I mean, despite uh, uneven performance uh, during the conflict, uh, Russia did successfully uh, remobilize uh, 300,000 trained former soldiers and integrate 80,000 uh, new volunteers uh, since September of 2022. And to turn that uh, lens and focus on the U.S., would we be able to do something similar if, uh, if our initial uh, operational approach got frustrated and we need to generate new power. So that's, that, that's how the inquiry came. Thank you. That's fair. Well, and this idea of the IRR, right, it's an old idea, but uh, you mentioned in your, in your paper that we've gone down from an IRR of hundreds of thousands down to an IRR of about 70,000. Is that correct? Uh, very close. Yes. No, we, we actually have. Uh, and there's two data points uh, in, in, on, the, on the timeline of this that I, I think need to be pointed out. Uh, in 1973, the IRR, when we went to the all-volunteer force, had 759,000 soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, and in 1994, when we made the policy change to change uh, the selective service timeline uh, from beginning 13 days after uh, the return of uh, legislation allowing uh, conscription to 193 days, uh, the IRR had 450,000 uh, soldiers. So very significant military policy decisions were made with this force in being in the background. That may not have been considered, but it had to have been considered by the policymakers, uh, you know, in some way, shape, or form. But but today the IRR is uh, about seventy-five thousand, I think, six hundred, uh, and it's about seventeen percent the size it was uh, in 1994 when we made the, I think, that very fateful decision uh, to to uh, to extend the selective service timeline by six months. And so this is what we had, uh, uh, what we were thinking about, right? This problem of. If, if the United States needed these forces, right, how quickly could they actually tap them? And so we already, we've talked about the idea that the Selective Service, it would take an act of Congress to allow for the call-ups. But the plan is it would still take six months for anybody to be called up. Is that correct? 193 days? Is that right? Yes. So, yes, that, that would be the initial flow of the inductees that would show up at U.S. Uh, MEPCOM, um, for, for them to show up, for them to be to begin classification and see if they are acceptable for the military. Um, now, there are still a lot of questions about how long that would take uh, in terms of, let's just, let's just say 100,000. If we wanted 100,000, how many induction notices would actually have to go out to draw that many personnel? And this is based on how many would be 
uh, everything from medically qualified to mm-hmm. uh, those who have um, certain deferments right. and, and accounting for all of those, how many we would be able to uh, induct into the military. Right. So it would definitely, it would take, it would take time for sure. And, and how quickly are members of the IRR are expected? So from the moment you get your, we don't do telegrams anymore, but let's say the moment you get your text message telling you to report to actually putting your uniform back on. Uh, it, it depends. Yeah. Uh, it took longer uh, during the global war on terror. But in 1991, probably one of the most successful tapping of the IRR, um, they had less than seven days. Uh, less than seven days. And it would put 85% of those called uh, back to service. Uh, they all had been less than one year from discharge. I see. Uh, successfully, uh, successfully reported. They weren't needed to deploy, but that would they were called up as a as a preventative measure. But but to build off Kent's point, I, I think the the term I use is the valley of death. Mm-hmm. Right from the time uh, something happens to the time we can get the first trained soldiers from selective service to, to augment the force. And uh, uh, some documentation I'd seen through Human Resources Command uh, about three years ago was they estimated it would take about 277 days if everything fell into place for the first newly trained private mm-hmm. uh, acquired through selective service to, to arrive at a new unit. So we have this thin green line, right, to weather you know, projections of uh, increased casualties and, and, and personnel requirements for up to 277 days. And uh, the number we had talked about with uh, uh, 75,000 in the IRR, that's, that's the, the number in it, but it's estimated only about 49,000 uh, based on yield projections uh, would actually be found fit uh, for service and to deploy. That is smaller uh, than the, the capacity of Bush Stadium uh, where the St. Louis Cardinals play. Right. Well, I'm reminded, and I was just thinking about this, that uh, in the 1980s, a, a uh, Gwyn Dyer, who was a, a British uh, journalist and military commentator, did a series of programs for the BBC on modern war. And he wrote a book imaginatively titled War. And uh, he concluded with the discussion of the possibility of the, the classic Cold War vision of a war in central on the central front in Europe, a Warsaw Pact invasion through the Fulda Gap. And the phrase I remember coming from that is he said that people at the time said that this war would probably be come as you are because there would not be much time, even though there were all these plans for, for reforger exercises and goodness knows what else. A lot of the fighting and perhaps even a lot of the of the the tactical and even perhaps even the strategic decisions would be settled before it was possible to bring large amounts of reinforcements to bear. Um, what you're describing to me sounds like any war the United States is prepared to fight would pretty much have to become as you are. Um, if you're talking about taking about a year in order to mobilize the forces we have, what do you think about that, Kent? I think there's a... Um the greater problem, I think, uh, to this thin green line is that we have removed or we have shortened the time for our political leaders mm-hmm. and our nation to have a discussion about a draft. In other words, if there if there is a large-scale combat operation and we start sustaining casualties, in order for us to be able to continue the fight and sustain the fight, Based on the time available and the uh, the number of reservists that are available, we would have to almost immediately start uh, reauthorize the draft. Mm-hmm. And again, that just does not give us a chance to have a national dialogue and to start thinking about what does this actually mean. And there are a lot of problems with um, reinitiating 
the the draft right of course. now. I mean, obviously, uh, our nation we we just haven't thought about it. And we, while we have some um, artifacts that are left over, we have legal authorities and all sorts of things that have existed um, since the Vietnam War. It just hasn't been exercised, and there is no operational experience in how to do this. Just one, I'll, I'll mm. just give you one example. I mentioned um, deferments. So there are different classes of deferments that people can apply for. Um, one is class two deferment. Um, and this is for people that are working in health, safety, or some kind of national interest that you do not want to bring into the military. So for example, maybe these are the people who are making you know, bullets and, and other things or, or uh, providing some kind of health services to, to the community. Um, Right. So in, in uh, during Vietnam War, there were a lot of different class two deferments. Currently, there's only one class two deferment that's, quote unquote, active and have been identified. Do you want to take a guess at what that is? If, if it's if it's veterinary services, I'll be <laughs> I, I, uh, I shouldn't say it's worse, um, but it's, you're pretty <laughs> close. Um, it's for those who are studying to be uh, going to the ministry. Right. So it's the one class deferment that is currently <laughs> active. So there were about 1.7 million uh, class two deferments during the Vietnam War uh, in the in, in 1970s, and it created the most um, bitter fight about class bias and and all sorts of other uh, problems within within our society and how unfair this process was. So imagine that kind of dialogue happening because right now we. We don't know who else we are going to actually accept into that kind of class two deferment. And if if COVID is just an example of who we consider as an essential employee or people who we need uh, in our in our society, this this can turn into a very bitter and potentially partisan uh, discussion. For sure. I was thinking about that. Uh, I made a joke in seminar, I think just the other day, that the the number of people studying for the ministry tended to jump up in the early 1970s <laughs> so right. that we could get that class two deferment. But that is, that is I, I think about that as a, as a practical problem, military problem, and a, a significant political problem. Um, how should we, Steve, I'm going to ask you this question because it's a hard one, uh, but uh, uh, not that any of these questions have been easy, but how should the military begin to talk about this subject in a way that could prepare the ground? Because uh, if, if we go by what Kent said, right, is we don't want to go from zero to the draft in uh, a week after the start of some kind of combat operations. But when is the right time to start talking about that? Well, I, I mean, I think one of the, the things we have to do right now, certainly with the, this, this um, you know, concern and threat about large-scale combat operations, is to at least uh, admit the problem as it exists. And I think that's one of the, the most fundamental things. We view the, the draft, we view a, a large-scale uh, recall of the IRR as some, some distant type thing. But the reality of it is to just bring the U.S. Army to current authorized strength in all three components would completely exhaust the IRR. Right. Uh, the, the, there's a, we, we estimate uh, we could call back about 1,100 trained truck drivers. But in the reserving guard alone, there are 9,500 vacancies approximately. Right. There's twice as many vacancies for combat engineers as there are available in the IRR. So before the first shot is even fired, before the first casualty is even taken, uh, the, the, the bench would almost be completely exhausted uh, based on some of the, the projections out of uh, training and doctrine and command. So that necessi necessitates uh, uh, you know, a conversation uh, right now, and, and, and that has to happen uh, and, and, and have that internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, because many of our active duty leaders, I mean, are focusing on their jobs, assuming that this long tail 
uh, there's uh, you know focus and, and and attention on that. But uh, an author that I, in my research called it almost a calculated neglect mm-hmm. of uh, uh, of the IRR. So I think uh, I think that open discussion and acknowledging uh, the the realities of large scale combat operations I think would be um, would be helpful. Now one of the challenges with the the military in general is it's very short career timelines, mm-hmm. right? Twenty to thirty years. Right. And we have to unlearn the way we handled the IRR for political reasons, you know, during the global war on terror. We did access it, individuals, but uh, it was it was very limited and, and, and not very uh, large in scope. Uh, and we may have to relook at some of the older doctrine where uh, that's almost the first resource uh, we would tap uh, rather than uh, than cannibalizing follow on reserve units. Because hmm. in a large scale combat operation, uh, you know, you can't predict. Uh, and so to purposely degrade a second or third echelon unit to pull fillers um, is probably not the wisest way to, 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 to build strength. All right, that's good. Well, and I think about this for, for both of you, uh, and uh, in, your, in doing your research, um, in talking about your topics here at the War College, either with your faculty, advisors, with other students, um, how have you found the reaction? Like I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you say all these things and I'm, both, I'm, I'm fascinated and appalled. <laughs> to, put it, to put it that way, right? And, um, but of course, I'm, I'm in no position to move policy either within the Army or on Capitol Hill. What kinds of reactions have you gotten from talking about these subjects? So, so that's, a, that's a great question. I, so number one, um, I've been personally surprised at how little I knew about conscription and the draft, mm-hmm. being in the military. Those, are, those people who have served in the military or, or are currently in it, they don't quite understand the system and how it actually works. Um, so I, I, had to, I had to do a deep dive into starting from the Military Selective Service Act of 1948, which is the legal foundation for the conscription. By the, and that document was supposed to last two years. Um, and, and here we are almost like 75 years later, and, it, and it's still active um, it, 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 with numerous updates and amendments. Um, and based on the fact that, you know, when we were supposed to expire and then, and then the Korean War happened and then the Vietnam War and then and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it has existed for, for a very long time, and it's very difficult to understand. There's a, there's a, a need to relook at that. Um, when I talk to the selective service, uh, and I work with them uh, very closely, they they are very self self aware. Uh, Mr. Uh, Spangenberg, who's the uh, the acting director right now, very self aware. Um, very uh, um, he he is thinking about this in detail um, and b- very progressive in in different ideas to how to modernize the system. the The Department of Defense, though. We, we have been more difficult, right? We have been somewhat resistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of the draft and conscription is sort of um, antithetical to, to, to how, uh, how we have grown up. Um, and we, ha- we still perpetuate some of the myths behind draftees and the quality uh, from, from the Vietnam War, which it not, they're not true. And, and I know Steve's got a lot of data about this as well, but um, it just, they're not very true. Um, however, we are very resistant to the idea of even needing the draft. Right, right. that idea that the, the myth that draftees are unmotivated or the draftees are bigger problems, uh, that those, those are not borne out by the actual data. Every measurable metrics um, that we have from back then, as a cohort, as mm-hmm. a group, draftees were better educated. Um, they got into less trouble. They used drugs less. I mean, they were 
uh, by all accounts, very, very good soldiers. Um, and we, we lose sight of that. We also lose sight of the fact that despite the fact that we spent majority of our time uh, with volunteer force in, 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 our, in our nation, every major war that we fought and won, it was with a lot of conscripts, a lot of, a lot of draftees. So as we, as we sort of try to reach back to um, World War II and other, other periods to, to draw on some inspiration, we, we need to embrace and we need to uh, be proud of the legacy that we've had these citizen soldiers mm -hmm. come into the, our nation's defense in, in time of need. See, and, this, and Steve, I want to go to you uh, on this, if I can phrase this question properly. And that is recognizing the, incredible, the incredibly high political mountain that the draft would be to climb. For us to sit here and say that uh, we need to think about what we would do if we needed to reinstitute the draft in the United States. How would this be any different from me saying that what we really need to do to be prepared to fight a future war is to learn how to fly? individually, because that's about as likely as reinstituting the draft politically. Um, I mean, how do we, basically, how do we move something from, let's say, a politically controversial and unthinkable even, into the realm of practical conversations? Well, I think one of the things that we could do immediately is to dispel, you know, this very binary notion mm -hmm. that either uh, selective service re revert, it comes back and reverts to the terms it was in, in June of 1973, or we don't have it at all. I mean, there's an entire broad spectrum. Uh, many ways, I think, that, that people would find uh, more palatable, mm -hmm. certainly uh, for uh, building a, a, you know, a contingency reserve. And, and during my research, one of the most fascinating things I found was uh, in 1979, uh, this very serious proposal to have an IRR draft. Mm -hmm. The chief of staff of the Army actually advocated for this on Capitol Hill. It garnered 166 votes in the House of Representatives, and the Association of the United States Army and the National Guard Association actively lobbied for this. So it would draft people, but only into the Into reserves. the IRR for all. For a one year of callback, so it wasn't like they'd be on the hook for eight years, but it would generate young Americans through the system. Some would want to stay uh, as, as 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 contract soldiers, as, as as volunteers, but it would it would have created that strategic depth. And leaving home uh, for a, a a gap quarter uh, experience to basic training and advanced training, and then just returning to your normal life is a very different proposition to ask of someone or compel someone right. uh, than it is to to take them away for two years. Very true, Kent. To, to add to that, uh, right now we have a military accession system uh, that are two extremes, mm -hmm. right? We have one extreme where we're going to give you a ton of money to, and benefits to, to come in to, uh, as a volunteer. And then we have the other side where we say, you know, you're, you're either going to have to pay a fine or we're going to put you in jail uh, and you come in. <laughs> um, as Steve mentioned, there's a lot of room in between in which we can get creative. Sometimes when I talk to other people, they think I'm advocating for the draft. I am not. I, I don't know if the draft would work in our current society. What we need to do is start thinking a little bit more creatively um, and trying to uh, innovate uh, mm -hmm. in ways in which we can recruit and retain um, and be able to bring people in. And not just in terms of volunteer, but there may be a little bit of, you know, we may have to compel a little bit, mm -hmm. right, in terms mm -hmm. of uh, getting, getting uh, volunteer service uh, in, into our, into the, into the, not just the military. So the other thing I, I did want to bring up was the, um, uh, most recently, there was a National Commission on Military, Public, and National Service. And they came up with some fantastic 
ideas. Um, but the key thing that I think that they did was they broadened the scope of service beyond just military and looking at um, both public service and national service and, and being able to bring in people uh, serving in different capacity. Because unlike World War II, we're not going to need 90, however many divisions of combat units. We, we, we certainly hope. We, we certainly hope. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, but we may need people with diverse uh, background in terms of experience and skill, skill mm -hmm. sets. And mm -hmm. that's something that we should be able to do uh, from the American people. Yeah. So this is something that you know, we talk about. We're, we're doing this here. So we're, we're hopefully whoever's listening to this, they're, they're now beginning to understand right, the, that there's space between the two binaries. Um, what is your sense of the openness of the uh, senior leadership of the Army or the Department of Defense to, uh, to move this conversation? Uh, uh, to to help with public awareness of the variety of possibilities. Un unfortunately, I, uh, from my vantage point, I, I don't I don't see much uh, much appetite for that at all, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is very unfortunate because I uh, I view the state of the IRR right, uh, right now as one of those uh, those morbid conditions that I think uh, really deserves a very very close look. Um, we're focused on a a, a knife fight uh, on the annual recruiting mission, mm -hmm. but we have to look at this longitudinally. Right. Even if re the recruiting problem magically fixed itself this year, the soldiers that weren't recruited last year or the year before are mobilization assets that we would not have for a world in 2030 and 2031 because of the eight-year uh, you know, recall timeline. Uh, and who could have fathomed eight years ago uh, a, a land war in Ukraine right. where Ukraine alone committed 37 brigades to the defense of just one city? That's how quickly things can change. And uh, it's just kind of a national insurance policy. I wish there was uh, more discussion of. Selling insurance is never an easy thing to do, right? To, uh, to uh, Healthy people don't like to buy life insurance, right? This is a problem. I, I do think there is a window of opportunity um, that is opening. And mm -hmm. I, I hope our senior leaders um, will, will, will really gravitate towards it. Because we are, we are investing quite a bit in new weapon systems, new equipment. We're trying to stockpile a lot more in terms of things that we will need when we go to war, we just need to remind ourselves that that those equipment, we need people to be able to use them. And we got to figure out how are we going to, um, where are we going to get those people? And fortunately, uh, I think it was the National Defense Authorization Act of 2022, uh, Congress directed the DOD to start looking at mass mobilization that would include uh, the draft. Uh, very slow to to gain traction, but I, I believe there is some movement where we are going to do uh, some uh, some type of exercise, some type of simulation, hopefully uh, to to just figure out what we uh, what the capability capability gaps are in in the um, in the early nineteen. 80s, I think it was 1970, uh, late 1970s, uh, Operation Nifty Nugget was a very large exercise that was conducted um, uh, for a very similar uh, scenario going into Europe. And they learned a tremendous amount. I mean, the exercise it, it, it itself in terms of the outcome was, was terrible. We, we, it was terrible in terms of the, the, the results, but it was a huge success because we learned so much and we were able to 
update a lot of our processes and systems. And that's what we need to do now is start looking at this as a problem, start doing these uh, um, exercises to figure figure this out. And, and if we could do our part to catalyze interest to the people listening, uh, I'll just throw out some numbers here that I think always grab people's attention. Uh, training and doctorate command est estimates the yield uh, of infantry uh, soldiers from the IRR, that 270-day bridge uh, to under 7,000. Uh, for armor and cavalry soldiers, less than 2,000, and for artillery, less than 2,000. So in other words, the grand total in the Red Reserve would be less than di one division. Oh, certainly for the combat, for, the combat, for some of the, for combat, the combat, combat soldiers, soldiers yes. Right? Yeah. So, you know, we 545 uh, estimate uh, tank crew, crew yeah, members, right. uh, and that's it. And well, that, that focuses people's attention when when they hear that numbers numbers do matter. Well, this this topic is a uh, you know is one that's probably not going to go away. I'm glad that the two of you worked on it here at the War College. We have we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you both, since literally we are recording this two days before graduation for the class of 2023, and I, I have it on good authority that the two of you are actually going to graduate. So, um, <laughs> so thank um, you. That's good. To uh, you know, that's right. So, so you can I relax. Can start packing. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I but I am curious for each of you if you have. Uh, a, a particular thought or observation about your time as a resident student at the U.S. Army War College that you would want to share with our audience. Absolutely, and uh, hopefully some uh, some future students or people discerning uh, where to where to pick uh, for senior service college are listening. Uh, I will be upfront and say because I live in the national capital region and our life is there. Uh, this was not my first choice to, to come to Carlisle. <laughs> I was very focused on going to National uh, Defense University out of ease and simplicity of just taking the green line from my house sure. and, and going to Fort McNair. However, uh, we we were assigned here uh, and we really embraced it. The whole family came. Uh, even though I'm a, a reservist and, and, and we lived on post, and it was uh, just, a, just a wonderful experience. And not only with that, the, uh, the ability to, to tailor the curriculum. Uh, I mentioned before the Ukraine IRP with, uh, with Dr. Nagel. I mean, that was, uh, that was just a fantastic way to, to get to know people in other branches, uh, and it really sharpened my, uh, my thinking as an officer, and I uh, was elevated by, by that experience. And also the, uh, the uh, Eurasia Advanced Regional Studies Program, which allowed for uh, intensive study and, and two weeks of travel uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe and in Turkey. Uh, and those were just uh, tremendous opportunities that I, that I would not have had had I gone to the war college that I thought I wanted to go to. Uh, and I really would recommend uh, the Carlisle experience uh, to, to anyone uh, considering uh, where to prioritize their choices. Outstanding. Thanks, Steve. Kent, what about you? I, and and I, I will also admit that the <laughs> Army War College was, was not my first choice, uh, but very similarly to what Steve said, yeah, I, I, I did not realize the breadth of different programs um, that are available here at the Army War College. Um, so Steve mentioned a couple. Uh, I know that there's a national security program. I was part of the Carla Scholars program. And one of the things that really attracted me to that program was that um, we, we actually tailor the curriculum. And during the first semester, we, we do all the academic requirements. So, so that, was, that was a challenge. But what we did uh, the second semester is that we were able to go very deep into a particular area that we were passionate about. And we were able to focus on a research project. Um, and, and that was just, that was phenomenal. That was fantastic. I don't think uh, I would have had that opportunity anywhere else. So I was, uh, I was super happy about it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that this is where I in, uh, ended up. 
Um, and it, right now we have some guests uh, across the country uh, and, and we ask them a similar question about, hey, w- w- what are your, some of your thoughts about the Army War College? And uh, a common theme was, you, you know, the name Army War College just doesn't do justice to everything that you do. I mean, there's so much more that you actually are thinking about and doing. Um, and so I would encourage uh, everyone to just do some additional research into all the different variety of programs that the Army War College offers. Right. Well, gentlemen, it's been a delight to have you here on A Better Peace. Thank you, Steve Tronowski. Thank you, Kent Park, for joining us here to talk about this. It's been fun having you as uh, students this year here at the War College, and we wish you luck in the future. So thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please take a moment, send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Um, If you have not yet subscribed to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice, I am imploring you, after listening to this conversation, how could you possibly not want to subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice? So please do that. And after you do that, then rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, because that's how more people can find out about us. We're always interested in growing the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you in the future. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.